Welcome to the God story. Yeah. I'm very excited. I want to start with a prayer, two prayers actually, out of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians 1. Um, For those of you who were here this morning for the preface, you caught the heartbeat of the prayer in Ephesians 1. But I just want to start there. Um, We are going to sweep through in five glorious nights from the beginning God all the way through to eternity. From creation to new creation, a sweep of thousands of years in five crazy nights. Are you guys ready and up for it? It's going to be fun. But we need God to do so on every level. We want to create an atmosphere in here where we meet with the Lord. Not just my voice speaking, but actually God's voice speaking. You have permission to encounter God off topic of what I'm saying at any moment. You have permission to meet with your Father, for Him to move and change your heart and your life, and to encounter you. And, uh, and so that's the kind of atmosphere that we want in here. Not just a bunch of information, but we want to really meet the Lord. We are asking for the Spirit to bring wisdom and revelation to know God. Amen? Okay, so I want to pray this kingdom family prayer in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Yes, we take your name this week. Father, it's your family name that we receive. I pray that out of the glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being. And we do right now ask for that. That all week, our faith would not rest on the wisdom of my teaching, but on the power of God. We're asking for the glorious riches of the Holy Spirit in our inner being, revealing God to our heart. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray together that we would be rooted and established in love. We ask that this family tree would go deep into the soil of the everlasting, endless ocean of your love. That we would be rooted and grounded in your love, Father. That we would have encounters with your love. May we have power together all week, all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We're asking for the endlessness of your heart for us, Father. For you to search it out and take us on a journey into who you are and your story. We want to be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. And here you go. You get to be a part of the story. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or can even imagine 
according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so we may know him better. So we surrender to you as a family. We're asking for your imprint. We're asking you, Holy Spirit, to do what we can't do. Take us by your eternal wisdom and your unending revelation into the glorious riches of who God is, who you've made us to be, and what is our destiny in your story. We're leaning into you, and we know that you have a lot of fun revealing yourself. Amen. The God story. A few disclaimers. You're about to get an information overload. We're going to run through all of the Bible. And of course, we're just going to hit the moments that link it all together as God unfolds himself. But my heart and my dream is that you would get so captured with the big picture that you would spend the rest of your life filling in the details. It takes the whole Bible to read any part of the Bible. And this is about God unfolding himself. So it's information overload, but we're really looking for those life-changing moments where God reveals himself to your heart. So that's the prayer in your heart this week. Um, We're covering a macro and micro story. There will be this story literacy that you gain. You'll get more fluent in the big picture. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit is going to be coming very personally. This is a messily human story from beginning to end. It is, there are these huge sweeping movements of God, and yet the way he brings them forth is through ordinary, normal, very interesting and funny people like you and I. And so God is working on a macro and a micro level, and I imagine he'll be doing that in your life. You'll be seeing the sweeping moments, but he'll all of a sudden stop you, and it will be like the only thing you heard came straight to your heart. So I want you to actually receive that and look for that. I believe, this is another disclaimer, I believe this will change your life. Not because I'm an amazing proclaimer of it, but because it is the eternal word of God. And I believe this will not just change your life, but this will change the generations that come from you. Because this story is proclaiming a blessing that so touches and changes and transforms us that the kingdom family legacy, the righteous generational legacy begins to flow. I believe that this story has that kind of power to so transform your heart that your children and their children will be different because of it. That gets me super excited. (laughs) And lastly, disclaimer, there's a lot of family language in this. Family language is potent. It's potent because there's so much pain around it. Some of us do not come from amazing family situations. We might have been hurt by our fathers or mothers or relatives or extended family. We might not even know really what that word means except for some negative 
connotation. But I just want to tell you that I believe there's a richness in the family language that's coming forth that has the power and potential to begin to reweave a new vision and a new imagination of what family is all about. So I invite you into the Kingdom Family Sonata. The sonata is like a classical form of music. When I was looking at the story, we've been doing this for about eight years, and when I was looking at the story this summer to prepare and go to teach it to a bunch of musicians and uh, creatives, God showed a few of my friends and I this vision of the sonata. We were looking up the word recapitulation, which means a short summary word that sums up everything before. And through that search, we stumbled onto a form in classical music called the sonata. The sonata is a brilliant uh, composition, and uh, people in this room could explain it a lot better than I could. I'm not, a, I'm not a classical composer. But essentially what it is is, and this is where we're starting tonight, the introduction and the exposition. In the introduction, the musical piece starts in the home key. And from this place in the introduction, it moves into the exposition where the major themes of the piece are developed. And the story is set there. But from the home key in the exposition, the song begins to move into what is known as the development. And in this piece in the music, the music begins to move farther and farther away from the home key. And tension is created in the piece. And then in one fell swoop, the composer directs the orchestra back or the musical piece back and brings it all back home in what is known as the recapitulation. In one short summary, he takes everything that has gone before and fills it full with its meaning. And the last movement of the piece, part five, which we'll hit on Thursday night, is called the coda. And in the coda, the composer moves all the way back to the perfect cadence and the original key, following out the the musical piece of the recapitulation. It's amazing to me that the story is hidden in everything beautiful. This is the story that makes sense of all other stories. So, welcome tonight to the introduction and exposition of the Kingdom Family Sonata, the God story. I hope you're excited. This little book that you have your own customized copy of, called the Holy Bible New International Version here, is quite a fascinating piece of literature. We kind of take it for granted because we have three or four in America sitting on our shelves with dust all over them, right? But I just want to tell you a little bit about it as literature. 66 books written over 60 generations and 1,500 years by 40 human authors in three languages. When you think about that, you really say, is there actually a coherent story? 
66 books written over 60 generations and 1,500 years by 40 human authors in three languages. That is amazing. It has this wild human and divine element to it where God wove together all of these crazy individuals inspired by him to write a story of the history of God and man. Absolutely fascinating. I don't know if there's another piece of literature anywhere near that. It's the best-selling book in human history. It's never on the New York best-selling list because it would win absolutely every year, 2,000 years from its written date. Does that blow anyone's mind? It's translated into 4,661 languages, but Wycliffe's working on the remaining 2,000, and they hope to do it by 2025. Go, Wycliffe. We look at this and we're like, okay, I don't know if I want to read this for my daily quiet time. And yet this book is stained in the blood of martyrs. We have this translation. We have the words recorded because over time, many, many people have laid down their very lives so you could have your own personal copy. That is incredible. And this is the book that transforms lives of every age and every generation. It is the book that changes very nations. But I am not here to talk to you about the Bible as literature. This is not primarily about you having your daily quiet time. It's not primarily about you living the right way or getting direction for your life, firstly. This is the story of God. That is what blows me away. It's the story of God. As though God were to sit down at a table with you and say, hello, I'm God. I'd like to tell you my story. Would you like to get to know me? God is so kind to have given us a history of the unfolding of himself. God would be just generic deity if he wasn't unfolded in a history. How would we know? We see this word. Probably no word is diminished more in the English language than the word God. Maybe the word love and maybe the word family, but those are all the same reality. (laughs) I love the story of uh, St. Francis. St. Francis' disciples used to say that sometimes he would go up on a mountainside and uh, they would kind of be at a distance while he began to pray. And they would hear him utter his first word of prayer and he would say, God. And they would keep listening. And an hour or two hours would go by and they would have never heard him utter another word. (laughs) That's the fascination I'm talking about. A heart so filled with God 
that even the mention of his name sends us on a tailspin into the endlessness of knowing him. We're here to say that what we know of God is just a fraction of God. I love this quote by Philip Greenslade. He wrote a book called A Passion for God's Story, which I highly recommend. The Bible is essentially God's story. God is both the chief character and the author of his story. He is the chief character and the author of his story. This is a common thing we talk about with the God story. As time unfolded, God progressively unfolded himself in covenant vulnerability to the point of naked and bleeding on a cross. When you open up this word of God, what you begin to see is God in progressive relational vulnerability bearing his heart to us, unfolding his nature, and we learn that love is patient. Love is patient, and love unfolds over time. God didn't drop all of his understanding and revelation on humanity all at once. He had this beautiful, long, slow, historical unfolding of his being. I think that's incredible. This is an invitation to theology alive. Theology was never meant for ivory towers. It was never meant uh, to elevate us above normal people. It was only ever meant for every human being to be utterly fascinated with God. I have a dream that every person in our generation would be a theologian. Not of just a bunch of head knowledge, but burning hearts like the Emmaus Road. That he would open our minds and that we, like St. Francis, like so many before, would actually believe that the very reason we exist is to know God. That the greatest privilege of our humanity is God himself. Can you dream with me of every person a theologian, of theology alive, living and burning? A.W. Tozer said, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I want you to close your eyes, and I want to do the St. Francis experiment with you. God. What floods your imagination in this place will absolutely 100% dictate your actions in the course of your life. What is your real idea about God? I remember the day that I walked out on a pool deck in South Africa at 18 years old. And I had been fasting and praying to try to get God, the thousand billion pound God in my mind, who was distant in my mind, I would have said something other. Into my world, if I would fast enough and I would pray enough, surely I could get the tangible presence of God into my life, right? 
tugging him out of his universal high place into my little funny world. And I walked out onto a pool deck and in South Africa, and I was frustrated because I didn't feel him near me. I didn't feel him near me. And I will never forget this moment because I found out what is my real idea of God. I screamed up just into the sky out of frustration with tears running down my face. And I said, God, how come I love you more than you love me? And it bounced back. You know those moments where your heart's revealed. It was like I could hear it a thousand times louder. And I'm like, that's not theologically correct. Right? But I had viewed God not as my dad, but as someone who was distant. Through relationships in my life, I had always been the one who had to work so hard. And if I didn't work hard to make the relationship work, would it work? You know, I thought God was the same way. If you think God is the great missionary, guess what you'll become? A missionary. If you think God is the great intercessor, guess what you'll become? An intercessor. (laughs) If you think God is the great economist, guess what you'll be obsessed with? Investments. I believe God wants to establish himself, not just as a missionary, not just as an intercessor, not just as an economist, but as a dad who goes on mission, as a dad who lives to intercede, as a dad who rules the economy of the universe. Oh, that we would be detoxed from the orphan and the slave ways of our performance. I believe this story has the potential to Reveal God in the way that Jesus supremely revealed God. It's not to discount the aspects of God's activity, but it is to appeal to the fundamental being of God. Abba, Father. Abba, Father, Daddy God. If we believe Jesus' perfect theology, we believe that God, the king of the universe, is first a what? Father. This will utterly transform the face of the earth. What is your real idea of God? The greatest thought we can possibly entertain is of God himself. I love that. We believe Jesus' perfect theology And it takes God to know God. Every moment of your life that you have seen God, not as you have made him to be like I did on that pool deck, but as he really is, is a humble self-disclosure from the love of God's heart to you. Every moment of your life, 
that you have seen God as he is, is God revealing himself. It takes God to know God. And what we know of him is just a fraction of him. Are you ready to step into the story? Open to Genesis 1-1. The only place to start. You can wait on that. The first four words of the Bible should absolutely capture your imagination. We skip over them to the activity. But the first four words of the Bible. Ready? In the beginning, God. Full stop pause. What in the world was God doing? How long was God there? Who is God? This place so profoundly allures me. It causes my heart to move and my imagination to just run wild. In the beginning, God. I've always been fascinated with origins. My name is Adam. I've always been the why kid that asks questions about what's behind the thing. So these four words make me crazy. (laughs) In the beginning, God. This is the home key. We find out just a little while later, and even more as the story unfolds, that God is one and that God is three persons. That God by nature is relational. I love to think back, and do this with me, this this next quote. We think backwards until the past vanishes and forward until our imagination collapses And there is God, the eternal family, unchanging and undiminished in glory at both points. Have you ever tried to think back as far as you could? It's like at some point your little brain goes, ah, that hurts. What is happening? And there's God saying, hello. (laughs) I've been here a while. Now I've loaded... One word in there, the eternal family. Because this is what we begin to find out. I want to read this, John 17, 5. We are going to reimagine glory together. Glory is not about it raining inside Though if it did, I would walk through it. I think that happened in Reading recently. (laughs) We're like, what else would you do? We walked through it. (laughs) Glory is not about gold teeth or gold dust falling, though that would be an interesting phenomena to have happen. I'm open to whatever. I want to reimagine glory as the very nature of God in interaction, in character, and in substance. 
The word glory means substance or weightiness. There's so much hollow in the world, but in God there is weight and there is substance. In other words, the weightiness of God's very nature is glory. In John 17, 5, Jesus gives us a snapshot into what was happening in In the Beginning God, the introduction. And I'm so thankful for this snapshot. Here's what he describes. He's about to go to the cross, and his imagination races back through revelation to what he enjoyed forever. You guys ready for this? And now, Father, what does he call God? Father. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And at the end of John 17, he says, For you loved me before the creation existed. Baxter Kruger in The Great Dance uh, describes it like this. The truth is, God is a circle of passion and life and fellowship. The Trinity is the most beautiful doctrine in the Christian faith. What the doctrine of the Trinity is telling us is that God is fundamentally a relational being. Do you feel that? God is a fellowship, a camaraderie, a togetherness, a communion. Communion has always been at the center of the very being of God and always will be. The Father, Son, and Spirit live in conversation. They live in fellowship of a free-flowing togetherness and sharing and a delight, a great dance of shared life that is full and rich and passionate, creative and good and beautiful. The Orthodox Church has actually had this since then. Just a lot of the other church has forgotten it. God is a triune family of fellowship, togetherness, mutual adoration, belonging, affection, insane party delight, joy beyond imagination, exhilarating, simply enjoying within their own relationships, fully satisfied, absolutely enthralled by one another's presence without competition. This is what the atmosphere of the kingdom of God feels like. I want to read one more quote. Gregory Boyd, Repenting of Religion. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God eternally exists as perfect love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ascribe ultimate worth to each other without any competition. Their eternal life together consists in the divine joy of expressing the absolute value each has for the other. Honor means to treat one another in accordance with your worth. God fully perceived one another's worth within their own triune fellowship. And the more they ascribed to that worth, the more their joy was increasing with measure. I do not understand this place, but oh my goodness, I want to be included into it. This is the eternal home life of God. This is the home key. Everything within you as a human being is waiting to be adored, to belong, 
to be cherished, to be accepted unconditionally, to be nurtured, to be loved, to be valued. How many English adjectives could I use? And you know why you're waiting for those things called home in one word? You're waiting for them because you're about to find out that you come out of the fellowship of the home life of God. Your being is designed to receive back the place it was taken from. Oh my goodness. If you can rehearse the home key and develop an appetite and a taste for it, you'll begin to know when the kingdom is near you. Joy, peace, right relationship, honor, value, belonging, adoration, affection, perfect love, no fear, no competition, no anxiety, right, 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 right. Right in love. Oh, this place is magical. (laughs) Fully satisfied. I want to look at this. All three persons of the Trinity have the same nature and character. Three persons, one God. By nature, God, Father, Son, and Spirit are personal, relational, incomprehensible, spirit, Infinite, eternal, uncreated, all-knowing, and all-powerful, etc., a billion. By character, God, Father, Son, and Spirit are loving, good, kind, joyful, humble, just, faithful, loyal, gracious, compassionate, etc. You could stay here so long. We're still in the first four words of the story. You're like, how is this guy going to get through the whole Bible? Tonight is just on the garden, intro and exposition. At some point, I think Gene Edwards describes it as light begins to emanate out of the Trinitarian fellowship. (laughs) Excitement and joy rumbles through the heavens There are angels at this point created, and they begin to lean in as God, out of perfect satisfaction, decides to do what love can only do. Be generous and share. Who knows how long into that space, God, within his own delight and imagination, said, we're going to share This is too good to contain. (laughs) And something starts erupting out of this place. You find in Genesis 1, you find the Spirit hovering. In the beginning was the Word, John 1 says, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. All things were made through Him, and nothing was made that was not made through Him. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is depicted as rejoicing at the side in creation. It was like there was so much goodness and joy and electricity and life and abundance flowing out of their relationship. 
that creation rolled out. And at some point, I like to think of it as the the unified voice of three, God speaks. And the word he speaks travels at 300,000 kilometers per hour and is still stretching out the expanse of the universe as we sit in this funny little room. Light. Boom. Right? God begins to create. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or power or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, so that in everything he might have what? Supremacy. God is love. All things come from love, through love, and to love. God is love. All things come from love and exist for love. That in all things he might have supremacy. The origin of reality. He is the foundation of all things real. Now, guys, this is not the Christian story. This is the story of God and man and all things real. It's the story of molecules and squirrels and rainbows and blades of grass and very interesting winged things and golf, maybe. It's the story of all things real. Can I commission you to do something? Steal back the story from Christians and give it to all living things. Or at least teach them to share. See, if the story started with what we know as a fundamentalist Christian, then we could say it's the Christian story. But it started with God, who rolled out everything real from the fabric of his relational being. Every living particle, everything we know to be real, literally has Trinitarian family DNA inside of it. And yes, science even confirms that all Reality is made of light or sound. Little vibrating strings. So maybe C.S. Lewis wasn't so far from the truth when he said God sang out the creation and it rippled and rolled out. This is the story, guys. If you miss the origin, you miss everything. It is the origin story of a large percentage of the planet right now. God is the beginning and God is the end of all things, that he may have supremacy. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand the entire universe was formed at God's command. Every particle of creation sings with family God nature. Science can't reach the end of the universe or comprehend the smallest particle still. We go out as far as we can, and we lose the plot. We go in to the smallest dimension, and we get lost. 
And science begins to sound like faith on both sides of the spectrum, where we develop hypotheses that we're not really sure about because we can't explain the farthest reach or the smallest form. Isn't that wild? God literally holds your body together by the word of his power as you sit in your chair. God holds the entire earth together, the entire universe together by the word of his power. Everything is his song, the kingdom family sonata. And where the enemy is about to come and sing the song of diminishment, God is raising up this kingdom family song, and you're becoming who you were made and created to be. Day one, two, and three, he is busy forming. He is forming the lights in the expanse, He's forming the atmosphere in the waters. He's forming and bringing forth the dry ground. And each time, God sees it and declares and names it and blesses it as what? Good. There's something more original than sin, and it is the good material creation of God. I love this funny little saying, God made matter and called it good. So matter matters, and what matters most is that God mattered to reconcile all matter to God. It's a tongue twister, hey? God made matter and called it good. So matter matters. There's a long historical uh, separation, theories of separation between the spiritual and the physical. Our story proclaims something very, very different, a good creation. Physicality, the genius of God. Isn't that amazing? Matter matters. And what matters most is that God will become matter to reconcile all matter to God, all things reconciled in himself. Maybe that will help you remember not to be a Gnostic. (laughs) Do not separate spiritual and physical. God declares it good. On days four, five, and six, God begins to fill what he has formed. This is the way of God. Do you see that? On day four, he begins to fill the light and the expanse with sun and moon, day and night. On day five, he begins to fill the atmosphere with birds and the waters with living creatures. On day six, he brings forth on the ground that he has formed vegetation, and then he's going to bring forth an incredible, incredible design from his heart. I want to read this um, part here. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. God is exalted in his power, Job 36. Who is a teacher like him? Remember to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it. Men gaze on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. I love the part in Job 38 where he brings Job out, and I'm skipping ahead in the story because humans don't exist yet. But he says... 
Um, excuse me, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? May you brace yourself like a man. I would like to ask you a few questions, and you will answer me. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Hmm, where were you? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it, and set its doors and bars in place? I said, this far and no farther. Here is where the proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take me to their place? Do you know the path to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born, right? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? For you have lived so many years. And on and on. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you endow the heart with wisdom or give understanding? Tell me. Oh, God, beyond searching out. I want to illustrate for you the immensity of the universe and ask you, is your God bigger than the universe? Okay, here's a little deal, right? Speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. Pretty fast. I wish my Toyota Corolla 97 could go so fast. I would be a terror in Kansas City. Okay. Here's the deal. Just want to illustrate kind of the speed of this. This is how fast 300,000 kilometers per second is. If I had a light gun and I could do this, and I shot the light, and it went around the earth, all the way around, it would pass through my body how many times before I could move out of the way? Seven times. Pretty fast, right? I mean, that's all the way around the earth. I think the earth's 25,000 miles around. Seven times before I can step. Speed of light. Boom. Out of God's mouth. Okay? At the speed of light, I get in my Toyota Corolla, and I can go in the speed of light. This is my fantasy. And I want to go to the moon. How fast do I get to the moon at the speed of light? Any guesses? One second. One second. That's fast. I'm in the moon in one second. Everyone go 1,001. You're on the moon. Okay. Wow. All right. That was good travel. Um, okay, the sun is 91 million miles away. How fast can I get to the sun if it takes me one second to get to the moon? Any guesses? Anyone? Eight minutes. You know this. Awesome. Okay, that's pretty fast. Eight minutes. She just did the math in her head. She knows the distance. And I'm just kidding. Eight minutes. Okay, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, a moderate galaxy in the universe, How far does it take me to get to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy? 
Eight minutes to the sun, 91 million miles away, how far to the edge of our little galaxy? 50,000 years. Okay, that's big, kind of. <laughs> when the Hubble telescope went up, they're like, here's this dinky little thing we finally made to get it up in the atmosphere. It turns 17 more galaxies immediately. Okay, you're like, okay, yeah, cool, big. They estimate there's 10 billion galaxies in the universe. And then you're Job again saying, no, I can't name the stars. I can't do it. I'm sorry, you can? Nah, come on. Immense. Really, does he hold this in his hand? I mean, does he call them by name? His intimacy will only change your life if you understand his immensity. His grandeur, his greatness. David said, God, what are you doing with a mind full of me? God, you who made the heavens and the earth, why am I filling up your thoughts and imaginations? He said in the Psalms. Can't you understand why he's saying that? He saw God. What are you doing with a mind full of me, little Dirty David guy, dude, out there. Dirty Dave, I'm sorry, David. David's listening. The other guys are listening. Do you ever get intimidated when you're talking about the saints and knowing they're listening to you? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus says. Not the, the was the God. I am the God because they're up there hanging. Um, we have a big son, too. 25,000... Uh, miles around, guess how many of our little tiny earths can fit in the sun? One million of our earths in our sun. Our sun is a little peon in the universe, just to give you some scale, okay? Guess, there's this other star out there called Antara. Guess how many of our suns can fit in Antara? One million earths in the sun. Guess how many of our suns can fit in this other star? 25 million of our suns in Antara. It's a moderate star. There's this other big behemoth out there in the vast universe called V.Y. Canis Majoris. Go check it out. <laughs> oh, Mr. Majoris, you are a major big thing. I don't even, they don't even know what the scale of that is to that. What? What are we doing as the focal point of God's attention? And then the triune family gets a crazy, amazing idea. And laughter, I imagine, who knows what happened, erupts at their own genius. That was great. It's going to be very good. And they make a declaration that silences the heavens. And God says, let's read this. God said, let us 
Make man in what? Our image. In our likeness. This must have seemed like absolute heresy in the heavenly host. You're going to make something in your image and likeness? I heard a story from a a friend where I think it was a Yellowstone National Park and there was a, what was it, a crossing of buffaloes or something like that. And he said there was like a few mile traffic jam to see these buffalo. Frustrating. The point is, the person next to you has probably never caused a traffic jam. We don't stop and marvel at those who are made in the image and likeness of the immense God of the universe. Who are you sitting next to? Who are you? Do you have any idea who God is? If you begin to know who God is, you, buy, you will have to think of yourself differently. You do not have an option. The only way you can think of yourself poorly is to not have a vision of who God is or to not actually believe you're made in his image and likeness. And so God created them, man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I love that out of the first declaration of God, man does not make sense without woman, and woman does not make sense without man. And together, in union, as God is in union, they begin to reveal the image and likeness. We have a lot of ground to recover in our generation in this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this section before the break on this. Here is the stunning turn in the story. Plot means a secret plan involving careful foresight. When God conspired together to create a being that he could fellowship with alone in the entire created universe on one little tiny, you can't even say speck in light of the scope of the universe called earth. You can't even say, you have to say invisible something, nothing. I, I mean, how do you even, and decides to turn all of his omnipotent power towards this little nothing something earth thing. And even further down to these little, tiny, what are we things. Here's the crazy thing. He's got a dream. And his dream is a family. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. This is the good news of great joy for all people. That even before he made the world... God loved us and chose us in Christ. Who's that? He's not even shown up in the story. To be holy and without fault in his eyes, God decided in advance to what? Adopt us 
into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and gave him great pleasure. You are the focal point of God's infinitely powerful pleasure. He wanted you. He chose you. In fact, you were filling up his brain and relationships before anything was real or created. And he decided he would like to have you a part of the goodness of the home life of his family. The eternal family God wants a family of sons and daughters. Amen. Let's take a break. Verse 27 of Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This blessing is not like we say in the South, which is like, bless your little heart, which actually means you're not really that smart, are you? (laughs) Um, It's actually an incredibly dynamic thing when God blesses. God blesses them. In other words, he says, you have the ability to be like me. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. To be fruitful would be to be in intimate relationship with God, bringing forth the life that comes in connection to God. But he wanted that life to spread. In other words, the glory of family relationship, the family glory of his likeness and his image to spread and to fill the earth. Can you imagine humanity filling the face of the earth, teaching creation what God is like, representing God to creation? And he gives them his delegated authority to rule over creation. We'll get into this more in a minute, um, but I'm going to move on. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work. Finish the works he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There's so much that we could talk about in the rest of God, but I love that God is a God who creates and works, and he is the God who rests. That apart, before there was sin, before there was need, and God with all power and energy, the God who does not grow weary, chooses to rest. 
And this will be a fundamental part of our design in his image and likeness. And he says, it is holy. In other words, resting is of me. (laughs) Resting is like me. It is godly. This day will be a sacred day. It will be a sacred set-apart place. And the history of Sabbath will run through the story. At this point in chapter 2, something really phenomenal happens. We've already sort of blown the story God has, I guess, as he had Moses record it. And man has been created and blessed. But then God says, no, no, no. I would really like you to actually see with me what happened. I know I, we, we just unfolded it, but now step with me into the story. And if you will, the camera kind of lens in Scripture. It's as though God, the God, the immense God outside of the universe, moves in through those 10 billion galaxies, moves through those galaxies into this one galaxy, moves through the galaxy into one solar system, moves through the solar system to one tiny little planet, moves through the planet to one small little plot of dirt, and God bends down on his knees, and he begins to form from the dirt. He starts to create and make He exercises all of his genius in this elaborate design so that he can look in the mirror. And he begins to form and work, and he doesn't form a small baby. He forms this beautiful, fully grown man. And there lies Adam on his back. And again, I love to step into this part of the story. All of his brain capacity fully functioning, waiting. He has been formed by the hands of God. And instead of God speaking this part of creation, like a master sculptor, he actually forms what we still cannot understand to this day. Things like the brain. How the entire physical body works together, together in union. The eyes, the ear. I mean, have you studied humanity? He forms from the dirt, but waiting there, lifeless, is this fully grown man. And God, once and for all, declares His intimacy with man. He gets down face to face and he kisses the dirt and he begins to breathe. And as the life of God comes into Adam, fully functioning, Adam's eyes open. And electricity shoots through his being. 
and he becomes alive. Face to face with the beautiful God of the universe, 18 inches from his eyeballs, he knows nothing else except what he is seeing right there. I've often thought about this. That everywhere Adam would go in creation, I mean, feeling water for the first time, observing the beauty of creation, right? Nothing would ever compare to the first thing that he saw. And Adam breathes out. That's what happens when we have babies. That's the first thing they look for. That breath out into air. And the first Exhale is not oxygen, but is very God. For God holds your life breath. And man becomes a living being. For we were made to receive God in and to exhale God out to the world. And we are taken from God. And when God looks, he does what I did. I'll never forget this. Our first child was Lily, and uh, it was one of these amazing things where God had promised things over her life and uh, had called her light, pure white light. And he actually delayed the, pregnancy, or the, uh, the birth about two weeks or so until she could be born the first baby into the new year. On the first day, God declared light. It was pretty fantastic. And we were downtown, and fireworks are going off over downtown as we're like, in the middle of insane labor, and I'm like face-to-face with Julie. I'm doing all the hard work. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Love, I'm sorry. Um, and, and I'm coaching her, and she wanted me to tell her story. So between every contraction, I'm trying to think of another story. This goes on hours and hours, and I'm face-to-face. Again, I, it's really the hard parts on me. And, um, and, uh, and I mean, I was into it. I was like game time This is the moment of my life. I was enthralled. And we're like this. We're in it, team. And and then we move through New Year, fireworks. We go a a few hours into the New Year. And a crowd begins to gather because this is going to be the first baby born at the hospital. Plus, Julie's not using any kind of drugs, and they usually don't have that at this particular hospital. So they're all watching this warrior woman in there bringing forth life. And at one point, I won't get too graphic with this, but she has a bar and she is yelling and she is losing her voice. And so she says, yell with me. And I'm like, game time, do it. <laughs> I'm at her side and and we're yelling and there's no, no kidding, eight to 10 people in the room with us observing this incredible display of something. It was classic. It was classic. Yeah, they wouldn't let us video. And, uh, and then the little beauty comes out. Boom. One push. Comes out kind of upside down, I think. And uh, I'm like right there, not to get too graphic. And I'm looking. And because Julie hadn't had any drugs, she, Lily is wide awake. And she comes out. I'm about this far. And her eyes open. I'm like... Oh, my God. It wasn't just Adam 
that had electricity go through his body. God had electricity go through his body. Do you see that? When Adam opened his eyes, God saw himself. And my little girl was purple, and there was a thing on the head, and, you know, whatever. She wasn't that bad, actually. But, and I'm like, she looks just like me. I don't know if that's a good thing. And God is moved. His dad heart, he's saying, I couldn't have done better. Look what I made. Do you feel this about your life? I couldn't have done better. And their eyes meet and something profound happens. They are bonded. Out of me you have come. You exist from me to reflect me. I'll never forget that moment. And I took her, and I remember she, she's pretty intense like me, and she looked at me for 20 to 30 minutes, eyes wide open, straight in my eyes. And people used to get freaked out by Lily when she was little because she would just look the whole time. <laughs> She never had the bobblehead baby thing. She was like dead straight on you. And the first time I held her, just right in my eyes, wouldn't, and just waves of joy. And what have I done? Look at this. I'm amazing. (laughs) And of course, my wife's amazing. And look what we have created. Can you imagine God, the family, saying, look what we've done. Oh. And God begins to walk Adam around. And he does what any father does. He goes, that thing you did, that was so cute. That's just like me. When you just laughed at that weird squirrel, that's just like me. The way you tell jokes, that's just like me. And he begins to teach him the ways of being like God in the image of God. And he begins to mature Adam up and they would walk and they would learn and they would grow. Adam was not born with all knowledge. The point of his existence was to be with God and to learn from God. And everywhere they would go, God would continue to repeat, you're just like me. You're just like me, right? I love you. I love you. I enjoy being with you. Can you imagine all the discoveries Adam was having as God was rehearsing his identity and their relationship and affirming Adam knew nothing, and, he, and the father was there to teach. Oh, I love that. I want to read just a few things because this image of God is so amazing. Here's just a few silly things. The human brain cell can hold five times as much information as the Encyclopedia Britannica, and there are 100 billion nerve cells, 1,000 terabytes of storage in your brain. That's crazy. What is your brain? I mean, your brain, even though it's slightly diminished. And some of you might have done drugs. Whatever. Okay. 
Some of you might be on drugs right now. No, I hope not. Nerve impulses to and from the brain travel as fast as 170 miles per hour. The eyes receive approximately 90% of all of our information, making us basically visual creatures. Isn't that fascinating? More advanced than any camera ever designed is in your skull. These two things that are pretty colors, by the way. The focusing muscles of the eyes move around 100,000 times a day. To give your leg muscles the same kind of workout, you'd need to walk 80 kilometers every day. You blink over 10 million times a year. That's cool. The lungs contain over 300 million capillaries, tiny blood vessels. If they were laid end to end, they would stretch 2,400 kilometers or 1,500 miles. Your skin, this is just really gross to me. Your skin loses about 30,000 to 40,000 dead skin cells from the surface almost every minute. Ugh. (laughs) Even though you do not see it happening, your skin sheds a layer of these dead cells every 24 hours and renews itself about every 28 days. Your entire body is creating and recreating as you sit there. Cells are dividing all over you. You are literally sitting inactive and things all over the place are happening by the genius of God, including your whole skin being replenished every month. That's nuts. Every day, an adult body produces 300 billion new cells. You're a hard worker there. Each kidney contains 1 million individual filters. They filter an average of around 1.3 liters of blood per minute. The magic of the kidney. Human bone is as strong as, a, as granite in supporting weight. A block of bone the size of a matchbox can support 9 tons. God makes the bone. He's just like, let me just do this piece of architecture. What? (laughs) We're still trying to build bridges. They're falling down. He's like, let me just make some bones out of dirt. And just because I can. I mean, about 32 million bacteria call every inch of your skin home. Hello. Your nose can remember 50,000 different scents. Some people are super smellers like me, and that's why cilantro tastes horrible. Anyways, humans are the only mammals to produce emotional tears. Okay, here's strange humans. Uh, These are some strange human deals. Um, I should have just put pictures up. That's what Jeremy said to do. I'm just kidding. Okay, relative to size, the strongest muscle in the body is the tongue. Okay, that's just weird. The human heart creates enough pressure when it pumps out of the body to squirt blood 30 feet, which reminds me of a story when I was playing second base, and this kid, Bart, a rather, lar- rather large middle schooler, slid in metal cleats, whacks, slid, slid is something. He's, he's right there. I look down, and it's like Mortal Kombat. There's blood, head level. Now, at that time, I'm four feet. Head level. And the, the kid proceeds to say, Tom Blue, I cut my main artery without any tears. <laughs> Time Blue, I cut my main artery. I am screaming. Blood is, anyways, it's. 
Your ears secrete more earwax when you are afraid than when you aren't. I could tell... This is why you need to slay the spirit of fear. If, if you have fear in your life, you are pouring wax out of your ears. To the degree that you live in fear is to the degree your ears are stopped up, which allows you not to hear. Maybe there's a spiritual more metaphor in there somewhere. I could also tell you a story about Nathan Shudd losing his earbud in his ear and it falling out in a piece of earwax about this size two weeks later. But that's another story. Okay. Your, your feet, this is disgusting. Your feet have 500,000 sweat glands that can produce more than a pint of sweat every day. And some people, I believe it's more. And some shoes don't do us any favors. On an average, a four-year-old asks 437 questions a day, and Lilo and Lissetti at least doubles or triples that. Um, only seven, blah, 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 blah. You sneeze at over 100 miles per hour. That's crazy. All bodily functions stop, even your heart. When you sleep, you grow by eight millimeters. The next day, you shrink back to your former height. Hello. Number 10, during your lifetime, you will produce enough saliva to fill two swimming pools. And Dave needs help with that. His pool is out right now. So, anyways, on average, a human will spend up to two weeks kissing in his or her lifetime. A one-minute kiss burns 26 calories. Get to work. Okay, and... There's many forms of exercise, and da, 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 the last one, a man's testicles manufacture 10 million new sperm cells each day, enough that he could repopulate the entire planet in only six months, be fruitful, and multiply. Okay, my stand-up comedy routine is done. Back to the garden. Adam is created for relationship with God. And in a second, relations with his wife. But we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> Is that bad? We can't talk about sex in here? We have to. We have to. It's very vital to the story. Most of it revolves around a word called the seed. So we're going to have to look at that. Um, okay. We're also made in God's image because we have a mind. We can reason and dream and think and invent. In case you haven't noticed, nothing else can do those things. You're amazing. You can invent. You can make music. You can do all kinds of crazy things. You have a will which makes you like God. You are able to choose, and God himself will not even override that. Wow. You have emotions. You can rejoice and grieve and get angry and all kinds of other things. And you have a spirit, and your greatest privilege as a human being is your spiritual reality that you can know God. You are designed uniquely amongst creation with the Spirit to know the God who is Spirit. To hear, commune with, and He designed your Spirit to host the full measure of the fullness of God, Ephesians 3 says. Wow! You were designed as the home for God. That's much later in the story. But for now, you're designed to commune with God. Adam is created for relationship with God, the family. Um, go to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Eden means delight. Don't you love that it says God's a gardener? That's one of the first things we see him do. Plant a garden. 
wild. In a place named delight. You were created to live in relationship with God within the realm of his delight. That is why you exist. And in this garden, he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a river flowing that separated into four rivers. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You have a unique, exclusive, unrepeatable relationship with God. And what is the most astounding thing about your human design is this. That it is the form in which God wanted to take forever. Let me say it another way. God did not make humans and then decide, oh, I guess I'll join them and become one. He made humans because it is how he wanted to exist forever. If that doesn't fill your humanity with dignity, I don't know anything that will. Jesus was looking at the Father saying, create what I will exist in forever. Wow. God takes the man, speaking relationship, God is imprinting who he is, loving, provider, creator. He's imprinting onto Adam who Adam is, secure, with a perfect relationship with him, blessed with the authority to rule creation in his image and represent the triune God to creation. Created in God's image. And God's walking them around and imprinting them with these things. And uh, will you go to the next one? He says there's these two trees. I'll break these trees down. There's a tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. To the Hebrew, the tree of life was depictive of this family tree. Now, I believe there was a literal tree there, but there's this powerful metaphor in the tree. It's about lineage and legacy, connectedness and rootedness. In essence, the tree of life was this. I will not operate on my own, for my life comes in relationship to you. I am dependent on the one who gave me breath. I find my identity from the voice outside. None of you were created to find your identity from your own voice, but from the one defining voice outside of you. And the voice that created the heavens and the earth was creating in Adam his identity. The voice of God was telling him his worth and value in relationship to God. This was his life. You are to live in relationship to me. This is humility, the joyful surrender of relationship to God. Sons and daughters in joyful surrender to the Father. God is our life. There's this other tree. And Adam had the nature of God, meaning he had the ability 
with the breath and spirit of God filling him, ruach, the word for spirit, with God's life filling him, in God's nature, he had the ability to agree with God and produce life in obedience to God. He did not have the knowledge of good and evil within him. This was not his grid. That had to come from another voice. And this was, essentially, this prideful orphan tree of independence, this alienation and slavery to performance, where we do what is right in our own eyes and we work for love. It is looking at the world from our own estimation, apart from God, saying we will decide what is right and wrong, good and evil, in our own strength, in our own way, in our own standards. I'll introduce another character in a second, but he is the father of this tree. And the seed of his lies and deception is what created this knowledge. So this, go to the next one. God puts Adam in the garden and he gives him authority and stewardship over creation. This is Genesis 2.15 if you look at it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. Work is godly. It's before sin and it's before the fall. It's a part of the nature of God. Stewardship is beautiful. This place is where God says, represent me. Represent me. Bring creation into its God-given destiny and purpose. God's glory was revealed through the lives, thoughts, actions, words of humanity as they brought the whole creation under the rulership of God. That's a quote from Jonathan Buller. God's glory was revealed through the lives, thoughts, actions, and words of humanity as they brought the whole earth under the rulership of God. They were blessed to be fruitful in relationship with God, blessed to multiply and fill the earth with his family image, and blessed to bring creation into the rule of God. That was their beautiful delegated responsibility. And God was teaching Adam that, and he was teaching him his ways. And this will become so significant for the redemption of the story. So I want you to soak in the original design of humanity. You were created to work, to steward, and to bring rulership to creation. Creation waits saying, show me God. And uh, it's absolutely tragic what creeps into the story. Um, I want to look at Genesis 1.16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This seems so intense and harsh, does it not? <laughs> Lots of people have questioned this space in the story. But there's something that defines the core of love, and it's trust. And trust cannot be formed unless there's option and choice. And the test that is put in the middle of the garden is all about maturity. God puts a command with a, with a very intense penalty for disobedience, for protection. And then he says, I'm using this command to grow you up in trust. 
Will you trust that I'm, I love you, I'm good, I have your best in mind, and I want to teach you the way to live in relationship with me? I want to grow you up into your sonship as my son, son of God, the dirt, Adam. I want to grow you up just like we do with our kids. And he says, don't do this because it will mean separation from me. It's not just a bad cosmic penalty. It's a reality. If you separate from life, you're dead. If you separate from me, you cease to live. You will be dead Physically and spiritually, you will be dead. For I am your, the source of your living being. And so God is preparing this crazy test. He created us to be with him and share in his abundance, but that requires tr- trust. Free will is about if we will obey God or not, not do what we want to do. Free will is not about doing whatever you want to do. It's will you live in relationship to God. When you have a sinful nature, you actually don't have the option to obey God anymore without a living spirit. Adam, on the other hand, because he was connected to God, had not participated in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he had the ability to choose right. That is what Jesus will come and restore for us, the ability to choose God in relationship to God. So Adam's propensity in nature was in agreement with God, but there was this free will test. And now we'll come into the story, the one who is called the devil. The word devil means accuser. This is his strategy. Where he entered the story was as an angel who fell. The reason he fell is he wanted to take God's place of authority and deceived himself into thinking he could. And what happens in the story is he enters in in jealousy, and this is the root of competition. That's why James says every evil thing comes from selfish ambition and competition. In his arrogance and pride, he thought, I will take back authority from God, and I will take authority over creation from man, and I will be man's authority and creation's authority. Do you see, if there's a break between God and man, man loses authority over creation as well. So here comes this crafty serpent, and the accuser speaks through a snake... And in a few words, perfectly crafted, in which Jesus calls him and his nature, the one who is the father of lies. He comes in just as he tried to do with God, and he says, I will prove that I am the authority in the universe. Look how easily I can do it. Now remember, God's been walking around saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're like me, you're like me. You have my nature, you have my authority, you have the ability to act like me in obedience to me. You have the ability and my authority to do what I ask you to do. Wow. To bring forth your destiny. And now listen to the words of the serpent. Genesis 3. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
if this is the story of God, and God is the author and the chief character, and God, the thought of God is what defines your life, what will be the first thing that the accuser will do to you absolutely every time? What do you hear in this? Did God really say? What do you hear? Doubt. Yeah. What else? Can you actually hear God? What else? Does God really love you? Is he keeping something from you? Is he really good? Do you feel the power of this seed coming in? Do you realize that if the accuser can accuse God before your eyes and get you to believe God is something other than good and has your best in mind, that he's your loving creator and protector, that he will always take care of you and meet you where you are? If, if the accuser can accuse God before your eyes and rob that from your understanding and from your belief in faith, he gets it all. The enemy doesn't stop there. What's the second thing he tries to rob and go after? Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. He challenges the authority in the command of God. Remember, it's the voice of God that created the universe. It's the voice of God that creates identity in you. And it's the voice of God and the command of God that the enemy goes after. What is he saying in this second accusation? What do you hear? You're not like God. You have to do something to be like God. God's been walking around saying, I love you. You're like me. You're like me. And the enemy says, there's some other things you need to do to be like God. Why don't you take this into your own hands? Believe me, I've been there. Right? And he steals the revelation of God. He steals the identity of man. And by an absolute fact, he robs in those two things the destiny on their life. Oh my goodness. The tragedy of this moment. You are going to see this all the way through the story. God is trying to give a revelation of himself and an imprint of identity out of who he is, and restore those things so that the destiny of your life as someone in the image of God, bringing forth the glory of God, bringing creation under his authority, comes back online. But on this day, in this occasion, Adam and Eve absolutely agree with the accuser they start to wonder if God really loves them. Don't you feel those thoughts fill your head throughout the day? Does God really good? Is he really going to provide? Is he really going to do this? Am I really worthy of being with God? All of these things. And they bite on that. 
and they break agreement with God, and every problem, pain, suffering that has ever existed comes from a disagreement of a belief of who God is and who they are in relationship to God. Sin looks like me looking out my office window at home and watching my next-door neighbor get thrown into a glass door, watching this woman just get beat. Sin looks like me opening uh, my window at my house and listening to her just beat her children to the point of what do we do, right? That's what entered into the story. This deep denigration of the image of God. This destroying of relationship. Pain and sickness and everything that comes with decay. And when they eat of that tree, their eyes are what? Opened. But this time, This time. Mm. Yeah. This time they're aware of their nakedness. I have to go back in the story just a minute because I had forgotten something really amazing because I didn't look at my notes. This is one of my favorite parts and I can't leave it out. Before all this bad happened, I wish I wouldn't have missed it, but God had a secret. And uh, he had made Adam, and he'd given him stewardship, and uh, he declares something. He looks at Adam, and he says, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. The first not good in all of eternity breaks into the story. Before there's sin, something's not good. Isn't that crazy? Something's not good. Everything's been good up to this point in the story. Something's not good. Something's not good because God himself is not alone. God has been hiding a secret, this part of his being. So he sets Adam up and he says, you have authority, so go and name the animals like I name. I delegate you authority. And one by one, the animals begin to come before him. I love this. And at the end of the day, Adam's exhausted. Giraffe. I don't know. Okay. Jeez. And the whole time he's like, God's standing and like looking like knows exactly what he's doing. He's mounting frustration of the not good. Adam's beginning to feel there's really no one for me. There's, there's no one for me. There's no one for me. This isn't good. And God comes to him and says, I want to make a helper suitable for you. And he puts him into a deep sleep. This word for deep sleep, it's as though he was dead. And God, again, Adam's on his back, resting. I love that his bride will come forth and rest. That's a good principle. He's there on his back again. He's resting. And God 
goes into his side, the place that defends the heart, and he takes from Adam his very, part of his very being, and he walks away. And this word for sleep is like death, and another man will die on a cross, and they will go into his rib and stab, and from his side will flow this beautiful bride. And God walks away, and can you think of this? He's been withholding a part of his image. This is a secret, not just made of the ground, not just spoken to existence, but made from a part of his creation in the image of God, taken from the man. And God walks and God begins to weave from Adam's side this beautiful creation in the image of God. And we don't know how long God enjoyed Eve before he walked her back. I love to imagine what they were doing and talking about while Adam is out cold. <laughs> What's so beautiful is God wanted to be with his daughter on a date. What were they talking about? You sleep over there. I've had time with you. We're, I'm enjoying this. And when he made Eve... The femininity of the image of God burst onto God, and he thought, beauty, elegance, grace, these are from me. Don't you love that? And then, check this out. The father takes Eve by the hand and walks her down the aisle to the waiting son. And Adam and Eve, Eve gets to see this one before he wakes up. She's thinking, what? He's just like me. And then they both bend over Adam and God gets to do it again. Touches him, his eyes open a second time. And now he sees God again, been there before. And he goes, whoa! And he bursts into the first poetry in Scripture. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. The bone to the Hebrews meant symbolism of the core of the being. He, he explodes and he says, this is my very being. Out of me she has come. And taken from him, she will be on a quest back into union and oneness with him. And the two will become one as we, humanity, were taken from God on a quest back into union with God. And when Adam sees Eve, it will be his continual reminder that he is returning to his source. That he is designed to be one with the one he was taken from, as the one taken from him is designed to be one with him. And this is covenant, and this is marriage. And they were naked without shame. When they took of that fruit, 
And their eyes opened again. This time it wasn't with poetry. It wasn't to the grandeur of God. It was open to their own embarrassing, shame-filled nakedness. And if we could actually comprehend this moment in the story, we would fall on the ground and weep and weep and weep. We would weep like the hopelessness in Revelation where the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and finish this thing? This deep longing of what has happened to our brains, to our relationships, to our relationship with God. And I have a friend who told me a story of someone coming in and deceiving his children and teaching his children that he was a bad man and calling the authorities and him losing his children. And this is the distance that dad feels that an outside imposter came in and said, your dad is a liar. Your dad does not love you. Leave. And this dad feels the distance and he cannot stand it. He is absolutely moved and gripped in this moment. And he comes, and I love this. It wasn't us who came looking for God in our desperation, it was the Father who came looking. And he comes in that garden waiting for their normal walk and he says this beautiful prophetic word that echoes throughout history. Where are you? Can you feel the pain of that separation? Where are you? Adam, where are you? He knows where they are physically. He's asking, what happened to us? Did you eat of the fruit? Immediately, horizontal relationship begins to break down and blame enters in. It was the enemy, the serpent. It was her. She made me do it. And where they were designed to function out of value with the Father. They are now looking around in their nakedness, asking one another, tell me how much I'm worth. Tell me how much I'm worth. Can somebody figure this out? And they begin to blame each other, compete with each other. And this horrible downward spiral begins to happen. And it's part of the curse that they will try to rule over one another, dominate one another, where they had this beautiful mutual self-giving in their original innocence without shame, where they didn't exist to take from one another, but to give generously of their fullness with God. Now they begin to want to take and dominate and rule. What can I get to give me value? Do you feel the tragedy of this moment? And God addresses the serpent. And I want to read this address. And I'm so thankful that in the middle of the curse, God sows the first vision 
of the second person of the Trinity stepping in with redemption. It's about a family. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat the dust. And by the way, whatever you forfeit in your authority is what the enemy has permission to eat. You are the dust. That is what's happening here. What you give to him, he is able to live on and eat. All the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here comes the battle of family lines. You feel this? He will crush your head. You will just strike his heel. And here's what's about to happen in the story. From this moment on, uh, every unfolding of the promise is a beautiful foreshadowing of Christ. And when those in the story would put their trust in God, they were putting their trust in Christ ahead of time. And it was reckoned to them as right relationship with God. To the woman, he said, I'll increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. That word desire is not a good word. And he will rule over you. Can you think of all the cultures and all the nations that have and places of abuse between men and women that have transpired because of this moment. All of the oppression. Oh my goodness, is God waiting to redeem male and female in the image of God. He is groaning for it. Creation is groaning for it. To reverse this curse. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, and I find that really difficult because... Usually, husbands don't listen to their wives. And here, he's cursed for listening to his wife. Anyways, um, for all you who are married, you feel, you feel that. Um, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, I felt like we need a little comic relief, though it wasn't good. Uh, through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And spiritually and physically, death and sin enter into the story, bring separation, destroy relationship, and God says, I am not going to put up with it. And his first statement of that is, verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Those little fig leaves of your own self-covering religion are not going to work. Your little performance to hide your guilt and shame is not going to work. I am going to make a sacrifice, and I am going to provide it, and I am going to cover you with skin. This is my grace. You will not save the story. I am your father. Do you feel the confidence and the resolve that this will not go ultimately like this? You cannot provide your own way out. He never asked you to from the very first moment. The Lord God said, Now the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Oh, what mercy. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. 
After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And here begins the motif of the orphan and the slave, alienated from the east side of the garden, looking for home and place, the restless wanderer. It says that Adam lay with his wife, and what an amazing experience that must have been. I don't, is that weird? (laughs) It is? And then, I mean, they don't have books on the subject. Her skin starts to grow. Can you imagine? They don't know how long it's going to (laughs) take. Talk about trust and faith. She's growing, and they don't have a concept. And one day they see an elbow run across this little alien thing. And how is it going to work? How's this baby going to come forth? I mean, this is a crazy deal. And I love it. When Cain is born, Eve declares what God declared. Out of me has come this child. And Eve was named the mother of all the living. Isn't that awesome? They say, I think, I can't remember the exact story, but I think the first two cars that were ever made in America got into a car accident. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> if it's just a farce, this is what happens in the story. It's wild. God is with them, teaching them to worship, instructing them. How else? It couldn't be fair any other way. God's teaching them to give the first and the best. And Cain, the firstborn, brings his scraps. But Abel, the secondborn, brings the first and the best of his treasure to God in this sacrifice of worship. And God looks with favor on Abel and not Cain. And when he does that, Cain gets incredibly angry. And anger from pain and separation is like this seed that is waiting to consume him. And God comes to him and says, why are you so downcast? What is going on? And then he looks at him and he says, and this is the mercy of God. God always gives a way out. He says, sin is crouching at your door, waiting to overtake you. The imagery is of a lion waiting to pounce and devour and consume. And guess what he says from the very beginning? He looks at him and he says, stop this sin pattern. It is about destroying relationships. Sin is not a cosmic rule book. Sin is sin because it destroys and hinders love. No dad likes to see their children hurting one another. No dad likes to feel their children hurting them. Sin is the destruction of relationship. And God comes straight to Cain and he says, There's a way out. Master this crouching sin. Master it. Do you feel this moment in the story? He gives him a warning. And they're out in the field and he lets his anger overtake them. And he murders his brother in a premeditated way. And God comes back. Oh, 
Can you imagine the creation you've just made? Blood is spilled out on the ground. And he says, the blood is crying out to me from the ground. What if we could hear all of the abortion, all of the wars, all of the destruction? Can you imagine? It's crouching, waiting to have you. And he proclaims, you will be a restless wanderer. And he says, I cannot handle being hidden from your presence. Here begins the hiding from the presence. And he looks at him and he says, where you go, I'm marking you, you will not die. And this is where we leave off in the story for tonight. We are about to look at the genealogy because God will answer and give forth another child named Seth. And intercession is heard, and at that time, men begin to pray because they realize God heard prayer in Eve. Lord, we just receive that you love us and you want to be with us. Give us revelation of who you are in this story. Amen.